Welcome to Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rockstar, where I explore the trials and tribulations of being a full-time freelance professional musician in this crazy business we call show. My name is Ivan Funkboy Bodley, and I'll be your host, endeavoring to entertain you with my tales from the road, because sometimes you have to laugh to keep from crying. Am I Famous Yet? is available as a podcast wherever you get fine podcasts, a YouTube series, and even as an actual book in hardcover, softcover, and Kindle editions on Amazon. Links for all of these, including my social media, can be found at my website, www.funkboy.net, F-U-N-K-B-O-Y.net. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review it, as these things really do help other people find the show. So grab your bass, tune up, and let's hit the road. Hey, it's Ivan. Welcome to Am I Famous Yet? You know, in my travels in trying to promote my music and my book, I've made some very interesting podcast appearances, being interviewed and having conversations with some really interesting folks. I thought what I would do at this point is rebroadcast some of those and send them down my own podcast feed so you could enjoy them in case you might have missed them the first time. Stay tuned for a rebroadcast of a podcast appearance from not long ago. Here comes one of them right now. Welcome to the Brainwave Podcast, presented by Windward Group Publishing and Media. I'm Gail Holnick, former radio show host turned novelist and travel book writer, and this is a show about creativity. Each week you'll hear interviews with people from many different creative fields, artists, designers, writers, filmmakers, chefs, architects, choreographers, composers. I'm interested in that charmed moment that leads to a work of art. Where did the idea come from? What did you do next? And what advice would you give others trying to unlock their own creative potential? Thanks for spending some time with me today. Please take a second to tap on the subscribe button on the app. And if you want the episode show notes, please go to windwardgroup.com. That's word with an O. Let's get started. Welcome to episode 18 of the Brainwave Podcast. Today my guest is musician Ivan Bodley, who plays bass and has performed as Funk Boy for decades now. He's worked with music giants like Sting, Sam Moore of Sam and Dave, Gloria Gaynor, Gloria Estefan, Martha Reeves, Stanley Clark, and he's performed with a total of 50 inductees to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and in 12 Broadway shows. Ivan has a podcast, too, called Am I Famous Yet? And he's recently written and published a book titled Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rock Star. Here's a selection from the opening. I have a quote that I printed out and tacked to the wall of my practice room from a commencement address by the great pianist Oscar Peterson delivered at the Berklee College of Music. Remember that each of you has something to give that no one else has. I keep it there to remind myself that although there is always someone who can play faster than me, sing higher, or write better compositions than I do, that I need to keep going anyway. 
In this interview, we talk about how COVID changed the way that musicians create music, working remotely with each other, about how he was able to work with musicians in India and in Nigeria, some of the well-known people he's performed with, like Mr. Sting, and places he's worked in, like Madison Square Garden and Carnegie Hall, and about the music business. Here's a sample of one of Funk Boy's latest songs called Crab Walk. One, two, three. Good. How's it going? You got me? Oh, you got the audio going? I've got the audio. I've got the visual. Okay. Great. Good, good, good. Nice to meet you, Ivan. My pleasure. Nice to see you. In this odd, odd circumstance we all find ourselves in these days. It's the way of the world, right? It's so it odd. It is. It actually enhances. I mean, I find I've got, I can do way more things that like if I wanted to talk to you, uh, I don't think I'd do a phoner, so it would have to involve travel and this and that. And we can actually, it's really expanded our universe in a way. That's actually true. I agree with that because you, you can get uh, uh, people on the on the horn that you, you know, ordinarily would have to be in the same city with. You know, you can do people all over the world now, basically, you know. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for agreeing to do this. This is just great. And I, uh, I had a, a cruise through the book. Uh, okay. and I'll listen to the music as well. And I wanted to start, if you've got a bit of a sense of what the Brainwave podcast is about, is sort of I'm, I'm starting with, uh, we'll, we'll broaden out in the course of the conversation, but I'm starting with just the creative spark. And I'm very curious about Crab Walk, and I'm wondering if there is a story, uh, what, what happened and where did the idea for that particular tune come from? That particular tune, well, the whole process, the creative process that we've done for the recordings lately, um, this kind of started maybe about a dozen years ago. I had a recording trio project with a couple of buddies of mine. And what would what we would do is we would sort of meet every other Tuesday over at the drummer's house because he had a recording studio in his basement. And we would each be assigned to bring in a song. So, you know, we would pass out a piece of paper and we would play through a rehearsal and then we'd do a, uh, a, a recording take and maybe a second one, usually usually like one take. Then we would go get a sandwich then we'd come back and get, you know, pass out the keyboard player song and do one rehearsal, one uh, recording pass and then uh, get on with our day. And we did this for about four years. So we had like this incredible uh wealth of uh, a catalog of music that, that we have you know that actually some of that's going to start to get released in this uh next year or so i'm calling it the music from the vaults series uh-huh. I've had stuff that i've had uh banged for a long time so sort of in, in the interest of kind of restarting that sort of project um you know 
both of the guys in that band like moved out of town kind of thing. So I, I found another drummer friend of mine who I traveled the world with, and I went over to his house, and we started recording. And I think for Crab Walk specifically, he and I were in the same room together to play the bass and the drums. And we were just sort of improvising that form and that structure and that bass line and that beat. And then the world shut down. So, okay, uh. so, so now what do we do? Like, how are we going to do this? And as we were just uh, talking about on, uh, when we first met here, you know, having now uh, Zoom available and having sort of being able to work via the internet for these things, what I started doing was file sharing. So the guitar player on that recording is our friend Moses Moe from the band Mother's Finest. They're from Atlanta. So he's in Atlanta. Um, Kenny and I are in Queens. Uh, Jim Darrow, the keyboard player, is up in Massachusetts. The uh, percussionist is in uh, New Jersey. The um, saxophone player is in, in uh, Connecticut. You know, we were never in the same room together. We just, like, emailed all the parts together. And then I assembled the thing here, you know, in my home studio and, and uh, produced and mixed it and all that kind of stuff. So it was it was kind of born out of necessity in a way. Uh, but also out of the legacy of the previous, you know, writing things just for the sake of of, of making ourselves create every week or two to, to kind of keep ourselves interested in what we're doing and, and practice our craft in a way that goes beyond our weekly, you know, playing of uh, Don't Stop Believing at a Wedding, you know, which is what we do to pay the rent. Hey, so, hey yeah. one of my favorite songs now. Let's, it's a hey, great song. I love great it. Song. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, um, but we're not creating anything. Right? We're just we're you know we're recreating exactly situation. Yeah. So how do you now having had this experience for the past twelve months, fifteen months, however long we've all been doing this? Which do you like better? You know, I like aspects of both of it because, as you say, you know, we're able to get musicians. You know, we were home for fifteen months. We did no live performances at all. So all of my compatriots and colleagues were in the same boat. So, you know, there were people that I, I never would have asked before to re- play on a recording just because, I, you know, I would have felt sheepish about it or, I, you know, I don't necessarily have a budget because we're just doing this out of creativity and independent play. But suddenly everybody was in the same boat and everyone was like, yeah, I'll play, I'll play, I'll play. You know, everybody wanted to have something yeah. to do. So I got this incredible cast of players from literally all over the world. I did some file sharing from some friends of mine in India. I just finished a project with some friends of mine in uh, Nigeria. You know, uh, it's amazing that you can do this. That said, however, there's nothing that beats being in the same room and creating in real time, improvising on stage and having a a group interactive dynamic. That's, That's irreplaceable. In its way. So the ultimate goal, I guess, would be to take these recordings that we've assembled from all over the world and then actually sort of reconvene to play them live in a live setting. That would be sort of the ultimate uh, mm. fusion of all the best of all possible worlds, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, you, of course, have decades of experience as a bass player and a performer, uh, many stages, a music director for many people. Uh when did you first get the idea that you would do this book? Does that go right back to the eighties or so, or is it a re- was it a recent no. inspiration? Well, uh, more recent. I'll, let's put it that way. I think about maybe about four years ago, because um, I've had people sort of my whole career um, tell me like you should write this stuff down because what happens uh, in backstage. If something during the production day untoward, something untoward or strange or funny has happened, you know, we'll be sitting around at, at a dinner break between soundcheck and the show and we'll go like, you know, 
this is nothing. It reminds me of the time that we were in such and such, and this and this happened. You know, so it was kind of the, almost this one-upsmanship that would happen, people telling these crazy stories. And because I've been doing it so long, I have a lot of crazy stories. <laughs> and they're all in the me, book. They're great yeah, stories. In the book. Oh, they're not even all in the book. It's just like those are the ones I can remember. Okay. But, you know. So I started writing them down about four years ago, uh, and I kind of, over the course of a, a winter, because the winter time is usually slower for us concert-wise, you know, uh, got most of it done and was feeling pretty good about it and then kind of put it down because I got really busy and I was traveling a lot and playing a lot. And then, you know, when the world shut down, suddenly I had a lot of time to finish things. So I really formally finished it up and got the copy editing done. My my aunt, uh, um, bless her heart, is a, was a former copy editor with Time Magazine. So she really like top level professionals like gave this thing the once once over, and uh, made me realize that I thought I could read and write in in the English language. Turns out no, not so much. You know, so she really <laughs> she really took me to task. You know, and we got this thing formalized, and now again with the uh, the things that Amazon allows you to do with the self publishing world. You know, I was able to formalize this thing and put it out. Uh, I used to be a publicist for for Epic Records years ago, so I kind of know how that mechanism works. And um, I just took it upon myself to do it do it on my own, and it's been well received. And I've sold copies, and I've made money on it. And like shocking, shocking to me, <laughs> great is working out. Yeah, it's, yeah. Great idea. Great uh, experience. So now out of all the stories, I'll, I'll tell mine in a minute, but I would like to hear what is your favorite out of all of these stories? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, again, the way the way that these stories would kind of come up, it would sort of be situational, sort of out of the blue. I don't know if I could pick one, but um, what happens, the way my brain works, it's sort of like it, by association. Like when you see something, it reminds me of something else that was crazier or weirder. So like there's one story in the book, uh, for instance, you know, people often say like, what's the weirdest gig you ever did? And I said, well, let me tell you. <laughs> we once played a wedding uh, in Manhattan at a, a decommissioned gothic style synagogue. You know, this really creepy, funky, drafty old building with this dramatic lighting. And it was a very high budget wedding, probably a hundred thousand dollar wedding. You know, the the these floral installations. There was literally they built an island with a moat with running water and these oh trees on it, and caterers and you know all the vendors you could imagine, and there were no guests. <laughs> it was just the couple at the wedding. It was the weirdest, most uncomfortable thing. We were playing a little acoustic trio off in the corner. To, to two people, you know, that, that spent all this money on this huge wedding venue. We played the venue before, so like, oh yeah, we have a gig at the at this uh, synagogue, no problem. And we showed up, and there was two people there, and it was the most bizarre, uncomfortable thing. We decided, sort of, among the band, we we uh, we codenamed it the Hannibal Lecter wedding. Because we wouldn't have been surprised to read in the, the paper the next day that one of the parties had consumed the other one after the completion of the – it was just so odd. And you can't describe that to people like, you know, uh, but I have photos of it. You know, it's like it happened. It was real. So that, that's going in the book, you know. Yeah. What uh, what music did they want? Then it, well, it was an acoustic trio. It was like acoustic guitar, acoustic bass, and like percussion. So we were doing like – in fact, at one point – 
I think the groom got up to use the restroom or something, and we were playing, fly me to the moon, let me swing among the stars. And suddenly the bride turned to us and addressed us, you know, like, oh, that's our favorite anime song. We're like, first off, anime, what? Frank Sinatra, you know, have you heard of Frank Sinatra? You know, and then we're like, do we respond? Like, you know, she's acknowledged our presence as breathing human beings. And we're like, oh, oh, great. You know, it was enormously uncomfortable. <laughs> it sounds like it really does. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the the one that that stands out for me that I enjoyed reading about, um, and it's just it's just so wonderful because it's all this behind the scenes stuff that people love. Um, right. But was when you met Sting and were oh, and yeah. were performing with him. So well, I'd like you to tell the story. I don't want to tell. Well, we've uh, we worked with Mr. Sting a few times. Um, um, I was working with uh, Sam Moore, who's. Uh, half of the of the soul duo sam and dave the guy originally sang i'm a soul man hold on yeah. i'm coming etc i was his music director for 13 years um <clears throat> so he put out an album he put an album uh, around 2006 produced by randy jackson of american idol fame oh sure mm-hmm. yeah so the, the concept for the album was you know let's, let's take this elder statesman of, of american music this one of the greatest voices of of any time and let's call all of our rock star buddies to come do like an all-star duets record. So it was Mr. Sting, it was Springsteen, Bon Jovi, Mariah Carey. They all came and guested on this record. So as we were going out to promote the record and doing some TV appearances and doing some live concerts, you know, occasionally one of his duet partners would show up. So Travis Tritt, Ronana Judd, you know, we played with a couple of people, Paul Rogers from Bad Company, and uh, Mr. Sting showed up. So we did uh, we did a TV show with um, uh, the, the the now infamous Charlie Rose TV show on PBS. You know, we Ooh. did a, a live taping. I know, I know, I know. We didn't know it was at the time. It was just like we had a gig. We didn't talk to him. We just showed up and did a song with Mr. Sting. Um, and then the next time I think we saw him was the um, 2009, uh, the first Obama inauguration. Uh, there was a ball that was thrown by the Creative Coalition, which is this group out of Hollywood. It was supposed to be nonpartisan, but a group out of Hollywood is hardly ever nonpartisan, you know. But anyway, it was a big concert, and uh, it was Sam Moore with special guest Elvis Costello and Sting. That was that was the band. So it was my band. You know, I was leading the band. I was conducting the whole thing, and we knew um, uh, Sting was going to sit in with us, and we knew he was going to do a message in a bottle with the band, and we also knew that he was going to do. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. He was going to do uh, Every Breath You Take with the band. And then Message, he was going to do, he did kind of famously back in the 80s at a, as a solo guitar version mm-hmm. um, at the Secret Policeman's Other Ball. I don't know if you remember, remember this. It was yes, a live charity record. Yeah. So he was going to do that. And we're like, oh, this is great. You know, so we, we, we did the rehearsal for uh, Every Breath You Take. And then, he, and, uh, then I went up to him. I said, you're going to do uh, Message as a solo thing, right? I said, do you, do, you, do you want us to play along with you? And he's like, do you know it? I'm like, it's in C sharp, right? He's like, yes, it is. So suddenly, the song that I had played the very first time I was ever on stage in a high school talent show, which is Message in a Bottle, like I'm playing with the guy who wrote oh, it. Wow. A, a very short 27 years later, whenever it was, you know. And it was kind of one of these things where I'm really doing my best uh, impersonation of a person who's, who's not at all nervous and normal and in their body and present, you know. <laughs> But in, internally, I'm just absolutely freaking out. Just, I cannot believe that I'm playing this song with this guy who wrote it. He's, you know, literally my childhood hero uh, when I first started performing. Uh, and that was one of these sort of life full circle moments. I've had a couple of them, but that was like 
a, a really big one. Like that, that stayed with me all this time, you know. And how was he to work with? Kind of a, an individual. He's a lovely guy. He's he's a very he's everything you would hope he would be. He's you know extremely talented. He's written iconic songs, and uh, he's funny and charming and nice. Like uh, we, uh, I, the first time we saw him at this TV taping, I was telling you about. He was promoting a record that he'd played. Uh, he'd done like classic English folk songs playing the lute. So he had like this sixteen or twenty string lute mm. that he was playing, and he had a, another cat who was with him. Um, uh, I forget his name, Emmadin, I think, um, who was like a, a the world premier lutist of you know, <laughs> was his companion, you know, and and we were he, you know it's got twenty strings on it, so like they needed to tune up before the the taping, so he just handed his lute to the other guy, let the other guy tune it for him, <laughs> and I I was teasing him about it. I said, uh, you know, it's like I noticed you didn't tune your own lute. And he said, that's because I'm Sting, and we're like, okay, <laughs> got it. Like, <laughs> All right then. <laughs> he knows who he is, and he's he makes fun of it, even that, you know. So he's just a lovely guy to be around. Yeah. Now, is it is it uh, just your nickname for him, or they call him Mister Sting, or is that something that's widespread? That, that was a joke that uh, um, Frank Zappa first told, I think, because he's uh, one of his live concerts got to be back in the eighties, sometime. You know, uh, he he plays the uh, the Zappa band covers the song Murder by Numbers. Um, and he said, you know, he tells his whole preamble story about, I was in the lobby of my hotel and a gentleman came down and his name was Mr. Sting. You know, oh. and he has him on stage and I was like, I just like the reference uh, well enough to to carry it forward. Yeah. And P.S., my copy editor, Ann, she's like, that's not his name. I'm like, I, I, I know, it's, it's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's an inside <laughs> joke. Having done a little copy editing in my past for people as well, I know that that's just a minefield in a way because you, yeah, you, yeah. you're hope, you're sort of crossing your fingers. You, you, these suggestions that you're making that's are right. accurate, but there's often something in the background like that is sort of like, no, it's I'm not talking about yeah. Africa. I am talking about Asia or whatever. It might be. That's right. Yeah. No, she was she was fact checking and she was absolutely right to say so. And I kept the Mister in the book because you know my my inside joke and my homage to Frank Zappa. <laughs> Yeah. Now that that you mentioning about the Obama inauguration, uh, that your account, yeah. your whole story in the chapter, all about what that was like, was it kind of an eye opener? Because I think a lot of us, although I do have a couple of friends in the industry, so I do have a few insights. But yeah. generally, you think, you know, isn't it first class all the way? And aren't they flying you here and there? And when I I, I was oh, just so no. with you, we got to the uh, I, I won't give away whole bunches of the book, yeah, but yeah. just in this one bit, like the transportation was was left yeah. to you guys. Um, is uh, what is is it, what, would you say that that's the way it is most of the time? No, not most of the time, but often enough that we weren't shocked by it. Like we, you know, the big factor that night was Washington D.C. was completely booked. There was there was there was no reason there was no even uh, there was no way to put us up in a hotel within a hundred mile radius of the of the town because the place was completely sold out. So that the solution came to put us on an, an overnight train back to New York City. You know that was like the only thing available because there was a huge band. It was like fourteen of us or something. Like what are they going to do? So it was a as a logistical impossibility. Then compounded by the logistics of the situation like the the star power at this particular event 
was, I, I think I listed it in the book, like all the Hollywood people that were there, like, you know, the people playing in the band were so low on the totem pole, you know, even though we were the performers for the evening, you know, uh, we were so down on the on the call sheet, so far down that, you know, when it came time to, you know, get us a ride back to the train station, unfortunately, that had been neglected. And I'm like, yeah, that, that tracks. <laughs> that makes sense. We know. Yeah. So we we had to walk back to the train station in 20 degree weather. It was fine, you know. Yeah. After this triumphant uh, uh, performance, you know. But reality hits and even bites sometimes. It always does. It always does. Yeah. Like, I, I think anytime we get near rock stars, we do stuff that feels rock starish, you know, like the very next day you're unemployed again. So, you know, it, it, it keeps you it keeps you humble all the time. Through the whole creative process, did you learn things at by the end of the four years that you didn't know? Did you surprise yourself as you were writing it? Um, I've always I've always written, you know, like I was always writing things from from very young. Um, and again, I sort of felt familiar enough with it or competent enough with it. Like when I uh, Back in my record company publicity days, I was writing all the artists' bios and press releases myself. So I was and wrote some liner notes for some records. So I felt like I was competent or, or you know, at least functional in that sphere. Uh, the big thing I learned, and I, <clears throat> excuse me, and I learned to, alluded to this earlier, was a, you know, when a, a real live copy editor got a hold of my prose, I was like, oh yeah, no, I'm not nearly as competent as I thought I was. <laughs> You know, there's a I'll bet, lot of, I'll bet um, she can't play bass. So, well, I you know I think anybody can if they just spend a minute trying to figure it out. It's not that hard, I don't think. Uh, although maybe it is because otherwise everybody would do it. But yeah, it's uh, that was very illuminating to me. It's like to realize that you know my grasp of the Eng- English language is tenuous at best. You know, and rules of grammar, um, and just because I don't think I was ever really taught them specifically like I, I you know i don't know what a gerund is i have no idea what a participle <laughs> is i don't know these these names for parts of speech you know i just know from uh, popular usage what i've heard mm-hmm. and can you know parrot and regurgitate and i'm not i'm not a disaster but i'm not nearly as proficient as i thought i was <laughs> <laughs> So, Ivan, if if you were um, going to give some advice or some suggestions to a young person thinking of becoming yeah. a professional musician, what yeah. would they be? Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. If you could do anything else, do that. Yeah. And, why? And Tell us that's why. Only, that's only half a joke because uh, what happened to me, and it happens to a lot of people I know, is like sort of you get to a point where, like, I hit the wall. Like, I, I out of college, I went directly into the music business and got, you know, I was three years. I was a publicist with Epic records, which is part of CBS and then later part of Sony music. And what I realized there that uh, it was a marketing company, you know, they could be selling shoes. They could be selling soap. It had nothing to do with music, even though you were around rock stars, you know, and pop artists, you know, um, there was nothing creative involved in in the marketing of it uh, i mean in in so far much as that marketing can be creative in its own pursuit but i'm talking about there was nothing musically creative in what we were doing and i was also a musician on a separate track you know sort of as a semi-professional hobbyist at that point so i kind of realized like i didn't want to do this you know i really wanted to i turned in the the corporate amex card and the expense account and the whole thing and it was like 
all I really wanted to do was play music. And that was, that was a very devastating revelation because it's a very tough road to hoe. It's a, the odds against succeeding at this are very high, you know? So that's when I decided, all right, if I'm going to really try to do this, I, I went back to school, went to music school, got a degree, made sure my skill set was, was present. Then, you know, started all over again, you know, mm -hmm. completely new career path in, in a city in New York city and in an industry that I had no guarantee of succeeding in, you know? So it, uh, that's what I, you know, I, again, only half a joke. If you can do anything else, do that. You know, if you're only sort of like, you know, casually interested in it, or it seems like it would be fun to be a rock star. I'm like, yeah, no, it's going to be a, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of miles on a bus, a lot of time backstage, not getting any food, you know, a lot of, uh, 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 a lot of sleep, just not ever, ever had, not ever being able to make up, you know, last weekend I drove 800 miles. Where, really from where to where? I drove from New York City to, I had a gig in uh, Nantucket, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. and I drove from that to Cape May, New Jersey, and back to New York City. It was an 880-mile round trip. And that was just me alone in the car, not sleeping. I, I think I slept, you know, maybe three or four hours uh, those two nights, you know. Um, and, you know, if they didn't pay me so much money, I wouldn't stand for this kind of behavior. But uh, <laughs> it was, it's not easy, and it's still not easy, you know. And, I, and I've been very quote unquote successful with this in that I've been able to pay my rent. You know, I haven't had a day job since 1995, that kind of thing. Uh, so like, you know, if I'm, if I'm the picture of success, you know, you got to understand that this is, you know, 30 years of really hard work. Uh, mm. And it's not ending anytime soon. You know, even, even the tours we do now, like you know, the last two big rock tours I did, I drove the van, mm -hmm. you know, I'm yeah. on the highway myself, you know, so and as you pointed out at the outset here, that that with COVID, I mean, they, you know, various that you have to stay adaptable all your life. You didn't ha you didn't get yeah. to sort of learn something when you were twenty five, and then just have the same year of experience over and over and over again. You've That's had right. to adapt. That's right. That's right. And sometimes things, you know, change radically. Like when the entire live performance industry shuts down, what are you going to do? You know, and and we did stay adaptable. You know, I, I did a lot of things over the, you know, we, we created a lot of music in the shutdown. Um, none of it immediately generated income, except now because of, I have this new catalog of music, it's going to, uh, it's getting released on color red records. So it does have the opportunity to now generate income. So it might be stuff down the road that ends up paying for itself. But um, yeah, like we all had to figure out what are we doing now? Like, how do we, how do we climb out of this thing? How do we stay productive? Um, you know, you, you thank God for unemployment checks, which kind of kept the lights on for 15 months. But yeah, you gotta, the, the industry changes constantly. You know, when I was starting out, I was working for a record company and we sold records, yes. you know, <laughs> we sold vinyl records. That's gone. What is that? That's yeah. Completely gone. Or, you know, or now it's hipsters who have, you know, I have vinyl. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you don't know what that's about, you know. So, like, you know, the entire paradigm shift of the music business, you know, what is a, a hit record now? What does that mean? How do you sell that? How do you monetize, you know, having a hit record? Uh, so, you know, you have to constantly sort of shift with the times, with the industry, and try to figure out, you know, is there a place for, a professional bass player now in the in, in the business it seems like it you know maybe 
still. Yeah, but it's, it, it is hard to get used to and all of that. Same thing has happened in books as well. I'm a novelist. Sure. And the, the it, and one way I look at it is that the number of gatekeepers has changed. I mean, it used right. to be that, that, you know, whatever it was, two dozen, three dozen people sort of got through the door once right. a year when it was seized mm-hmm. this right season. But other than that, whereas now, as you were mentioning earlier as well with, with Amazon, you can, you know, we can write books, we can put Anybody. things out there and yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Right. And so the gatekeepers are, they're, they're influenced, they're still there certainly, yes. but their influence is shrinking. Well, the same exact thing has happened with music now with YouTube. It's, it's democratized everything you know, completely globally. So now, instead of having to get a record deal on Epic Records or whatever, you know, and, and as you say, it's like it's a dozen people a year that, that get through the door in those days. Now, everybody and anybody can put a, a thing up on YouTube and have it go viral and, you know, be famous the next day. Problem is, everybody can do that. So, like, you know, how do you then rise above the all the competition? You know, just it, there's so much stuff out there. There's a really glut of material. Same thing with Amazon, same thing with, you know, absolutely Kindle yeah. books, you know, everybody can put out a book. So how do you get it noticed? You know, and I'm just I'm not getting sure that with the answer. Yeah. No, I don't either. But it, and, and even just getting that first listen, because I, I think yeah. one of the positive things about it is that the, the listener, the viewer, the reader has far more power than they did in the 70s. I mean, right. back then, if there's somebody who was brilliant and really should be a big star, uh, but somebody who worked at Epic Records or wherever um, decided, no, I don't like the guy. I'm not, I'm not having him in the room That's that right. could have been the end of their of the career. And then none of the rest of us would have get to, would get to hear, or, hear or see it. But I've nowadays you can, many times, yeah. is that yeah. right? Really? Sure. Yeah. 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 But now uh, the viewer, the listener has a lot more power and I think that's right. a good thing. I, I agree. I think it's better. There's more good than ill that comes from it. What I learned from experience a long time ago. And again, this is in the old, paradigm of the record industry what that was is like so many things and it's still true today to an extent but in a different way so many things have to go right for you to have a quote-unquote hit record viral video breakthrough things like it's not just that you have to have a great record you do but then you also as you just said you know the boss of the company has to want to put it out Mm-hmm. And not think that you're a jerk or be mad about something you said about his wife or, you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. whatever crazy offense you may have done, you know, all that has to go right. Then the the next layer at that time was like the radio stations, like the radio stations had to be sort of receptive to it. You know, these days, maybe it's, you know, not the radio stations, it's YouTube or whatever else. And then beyond that, the public now has to have the appetite for it. Like you have to have the right message at the right time. So that speaks to like now, these days, it's the algorithms. Are the algorithms responding to what you're, you're putting out, you know, and then allowing things to be shared? Or back in the old days, it's sort of like, you know, are the, are the listeners to the radio station calling up and saying, hey, can we hear that record again? You know, so it's, it's a similar thing, but it's constantly sort of shifting. And as now as it was then, so many things have to go right for you to then have a successful you know, project, whatever that project is, you know. Ivan, thank you very much for doing this today. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. That was Ivan Baudley, who plays bass, works as a music director and producer, hosts a podcast, and is the author of Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rock Star.
Last year, I wrote a novel called Resorting to Fraud about a rock star who hates his life and wants to change it, hates the fame and fortune. Well, he hates the fame, doesn't mind the fortune. He wants to hang on to the fortune, and that's why he does what he does. Now, some of Ivan's stories in Am I Famous Yet are as good or better than the ones I read about when I was researching Resorting to Fraud. Next time on the Brainwave podcast, my guest is novelist Kenise Marshall, who writes in the paranormal romance genre. And today, I'll leave you with a quote from Jack London, the author of Call of the Wild. You can't wait for inspiration. You have to go after it with a club. See you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and found it helpful. If you did, please mention it to a few friends or pass it along on social media and tag us if you do. And please tap the subscribe button on your podcast app and take a minute to leave a ranking or review. You might also like the backlist available at Windward Group Publishing and Media, and that's www.windwardgroup.com slash brainwave podcast. And Windward is spelled W-I-N-D-W-O-R-D. You'll also find the show notes for today's episode there too. If you'd like to connect, you can find us on Facebook at Windward Group Publishing and Media, on Twitter at Windward Publish, and on Instagram at Windward PNM. I'm Gail Holnick. Please join us next time.